Well, today, in this final verse of Jude, we have the glorious climax of the epistle. We started looking at it last time in verse 24. This is indeed the concluding verse. Three headings for this one verse. The recipient of our praise. The virtues of his praise. And thirdly, the duration of our praise. The recipient of our praise, the virtues of his praise, and the duration of our praise. That is the headings for today's outline. If you were to write a letter to someone that you loved dearly, what kind of ending would you want to communicate in that letter? Maybe you're thinking of a letter that you have already written to someone you love dearly. Or maybe it's a letter that has been written to you by someone who loves you dearly. Or maybe even a letter you are hoping someone writes to you someday. Whatever the case, we can all appreciate something of the gravity concerning what comes at the end of a heartfelt letter, can we not? This morning, as we close our study in the epistle of Jude, we will hear not only the heartfelt voice of the human author who identified himself as the slave of Jesus Christ. Remember from our first sermon, we talked about this is Jude, the half-brother of Christ who lived with Jesus in a home and did not believe in him until after the resurrection. And here he's calling himself the slave of his brother, the slave of Christ, a transformed life. The human author, we will hear his voice today. But we'll also hear the divine author. From he who was and is and who is to come, God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now what we will hear at the end of this letter will, if it is attended by faith, brothers and sisters, set your heart ablaze towards the God we all ought to serve, and for those of us here this morning who do serve him, we will taste once more of that living water which is offered to us all so freely with the words, O oh, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. So let us pray that the Lord would give us such a blessing this morning as we eat and drink of Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help during this last sermon in the book of Jude, this powerful short epistle that you have been feeding us on for so many weeks. Lord, we ask for your help because we need it. And we ask that you would guide us so that we would give you glory and that you would give us trust. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. And we all say, Amen. Well, the Hebrew Old Testament has a word that encompasses the concept of glory and honor. And that word is kavod. Listen to the words of another. When kavod is used of God, it does not mean God in his essential nature, but the luminous manifestation of his person, his glorious revelation of himself. Kavod is linked with verbs of seeing and appearing. We may recognize this kavod, this glory, in creation, but it expresses itself above all 
in salvation history. We see kavod in God's great acts, and especially God's presence in the sanctuary. For instance, in 1 Samuel, the loss of the ark to the Philistines means that the glory of God, the kavod, has departed from Israel. And in the last days, a full manifestation of the kavod, the glory, was expected. Its purpose was not only to bring salvation to Israel, but also to convert the nations. Now, I think this explanation of kavod, of glory, from the Old Testament can serve us well as a backdrop to the concluding verse of this epistle this morning. I also think that kavod is a major theological theme that builds throughout the whole Old Testament until it finally finds its eschatological end-time fulfillment in the shining face of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised full manifestation of this visible glory of God, the kavod, bringing salvation to Israel and to the nations. So think about it. As a Jew, you were waiting for this full manifestation of the glory of God that was promised in all of the scriptures. And this theme is building and building and building. And it finally comes in Jesus Christ. In that verse, Jude 24, that we read last time, remember this doxological praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his kavod, his glory, blameless with great joy. In that verse, Jude was focusing on the ability of the one being praised. And now in verse 25, we're moving to consider the identity of the one being praised. So with your hand on verse 25, read with me. The recipient of our praise. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. An explanation of this verse begins with the idea, the doctrine, the reality, the truth that there is only one true and living God. Simply put, it's monotheism. Monotheism was confessed so early in the scriptures, and yet a mystery is laced in the terms, let us make man in our image. And yet the Israelites still confessed in Deuteronomy 6.4 that which is the most cherished verse by any believing Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Even in that verse, in Deuteronomy 6.4, there's something of this mystery of plurality in unity and unity in plurality with the words Lord and God. Yahweh and Elohim, one singular, one plural. But truly, Isaiah 43, verse 3, also captures the same idea. For I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, 
your Savior. So here we not have only this monotheism, this one true and living God covenanted with a people, but he is their Savior. And this is who Jude is sending this doxological praise to as he unveils the recipient now of this praise. To the only God, our Savior. Now, if we were looking at this verse with biblicist eyes, meaning if we were looking at it with a too uniform, literal understanding of the words and wanted to close off all of Scripture around it and say, I just want to know what this one verse is saying without considering anything else that God has said in his word. May we never do that, brothers and sisters. May we never put a muzzle on God so he can't speak into a verse from other verses in Scripture. If we were to do that, though, we may come to the conclusion that there's a distinction being made here between the only God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ. In other sense, if we were a Unitarian, or if we were a Jehovah's Witness, or if we were a Mormon, or if we were part of some other religious movement, we might conclude from this verse, wrongly, that Jesus Christ is not the Savior or the God being spoken of. That it's just the Father alone. It is true that this verse does talk about a distinction with Jesus Christ, but not to the exclusion of Jesus Christ in the first part of this verse. When it says, through Jesus Christ our Lord, it's speaking of this mediatorial work of our Savior. That Jesus Christ is the God-man. But just because he is the God-man does not mean that he is not God Almighty as well. He is indeed the God-man. This through Jesus Christ is confessed in our confession of faith. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator from our confession. We've considered it before. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head, and listen, and savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people, to be his seed, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So much in this one paragraph in our confession is going to speak to this one verse in Jude today. Do you hear this eternity language? Who from all of eternity gave a people to be his seed? That's the covenant of redemption. There was a, there was a covenant made outside of time in the Godhead, concerning what would take place here in redemptive history. And God is to be glorified for that. And indeed, I believe Jude will be talking about giving God glory for that very thing in this verse. But what I want you to see here is this language of through Jesus Christ our Lord. That through language is mediatorial language. And we need to understand it as such. Not that we have God the Father, who is the only God and our Savior, and Jesus is on a substrata below him, because it's through him. 
I would actually argue that that language, that we're pairing God the Father or God our Savior with Jesus Christ is actually elevating Jesus Christ to the level of deity. Just as it was in John 17 when, John, when Jesus prays to the Father that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Some have concluded there's a distinction between God the Father and the Son. God the Father is the one true God, and Jesus Christ is just the one whom he has sent. But again, this is eternal life, brothers and sisters, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you see the elevation of Jesus Christ to the level of deity? If Jesus were not God, to believe in him equally with the Father would be blasphemous. And so here we have monotheism, and we have language of Jesus as mediator, but we ought not divorce Jesus Christ from being the only God and the Savior, as well as the mediator. The scriptures clearly teach this, and this is why we can't close off the rest of scripture from this verse. Consider this Trinitarian theology given to us just from the New Testament. This is singing Trinitarian praise here, brothers and sisters. Listen to Luke 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born for you, what? Who? A Savior. Who is Christ the Lord, born to be a Savior. John 4.42 And they were saying to the woman, this is the Samaritan woman, the ones the Jews looked down upon, those who were excluded in the Jewish thinking from the commonwealth of Israel, from the covenants and from all of the blessings of being the people of God. They were saying to this woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe, for we have heard ourselves about Jesus and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. He was confessed to be a Savior. How about 1 John 4.14? We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So he's born to be a Savior. He's confessed to be a Savior. He's proclaimed to be a Savior of Jews and Gentiles. How about Matthew 1.21? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I think some of you may know that the name Jesus itself means Yahweh saves. So it's kind of ironic that here Jude is saying to the one God our Savior through Jesus Christ when the name Jesus means Savior of Yahweh. Oh, brothers and sisters, do not cut off Jesus Christ from the first part of this verse. He is our God and our Savior Listen to Titus 2, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. Interesting language. The grace of God has appeared? 
Remember what we talked about in the Old Testament, this idea of kavod, this glory being promised to manifest itself fully in the end times? And I said that that glory is none other than Jesus Christ. This is something of what's behind Paul when he says, for the grace of God has appeared. Jesus has come. The promise of this glory has come. Bringing salvation to all men. This kavod, this glorious one, brings salvation to all men, Jew and Gentile, according to the promise. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You say, okay, clearly Jesus is Savior. But you still haven't convinced me that he's God. I pray that's not the case. Paul goes on to say, looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory, the kavod of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Sing this Trinitarian praise with me, that Jesus was born to be a Savior. He was confessed to be a Savior. He's proclaimed to be a Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles, and he was even named to be a Savior. And truly, he is our great God and Savior. Amen? To the only God, our Savior, through mediatorial language, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord also speaks of the deity. Of Christ, for it is that word kurios, which is translated in the Old Testament, Lord for Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh, our great God and Savior. I want you to look at this illustration if you are able to turn to Isaiah chapter 60. I've talked a lot about this idea of this promise of this kavod, this glory coming in the end times. I want you to hear it for yourself. And then I want you to see the reaction of those in the New Testament when it was finally brought about. Isaiah chapter 60. And even notice the ambiguity of the language here in Isaiah 60, where we have this idea of something that has come, and yet something that will come. We have this idea of the already, not yet. For truly, Christ had shown in the hearts of his people in the Old Testament, and yet he had not come in the flesh. That wouldn't take place until the fullness of time, when he was born of the flesh born of a woman, born under the law. Isaiah chapter 60, starting in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Listen. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. There it is. The kavod of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. There's the promise. This promise of this glory coming. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
This promise is not just in Isaiah chapter 60. We read it today in Psalm 29 in our call to worship. We sang it when we sang Psalm 29. I'm sorry, not Psalm um, 29. We will get to that Psalm. It's actually, let me turn back, Psalm 67. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Again, there's this promise of this glory, this kavod coming, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise you. This is what Jude is doing in this last verse. He's telling us to praise the Lord for the fulfillment of this promise to bring this glory in the end of time, the end of the age, if you will, the beginning, yet not the consummation. And so we have these ideas from the Psalms. We have this idea from Isaiah 60. If you were a Bible-reading Jew, you would understand God is going to do something. He has promised to bring salvation to our people. We have been afflicted, yet He has promised to shine His face upon us. And not only to us, but to the nations. And so Mary, the mother of our Lord, was looking for that promise when she sang her song, when she was told of the promise of this Savior being born of her. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the humble state of his slave. Same language of, of Jude. He has given help to Israel, his servant. Listen, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. Mary gets it. Mary understood the Torah. Mary understood the promises of Yahweh. And she has recognized now that this promise is being fulfilled with her. Zechariah, just a few verses later, sings a very similar song. When he is confronted with the birth of John the Baptist, or his wife would give birth to John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of this Messiah. Zechariah prophesied in the light of this Old Testament promise of the end-time glory at the birth of Jesus' cousin, John. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Zechariah, being a priest, surely knew the Old Testament. Think about the conversations that Mary must have had with Elizabeth, her cousin, and Zechariah concerning what was being done in their midst what was being done as God used them as instruments to bring about this long-awaited promise of the full manifestation of the glory of God to bring salvation to Israel and to the nations. John, in his gospel, 
confesses this true reality when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, the promise was a full manifestation was to come of the glory of God. And here John is saying, we beheld it. We beheld Jesus' glory, full of grace and truth. So here's the application, brothers and sisters. Do you confess this one true and living God? Is he your God and your Savior? Or rather, is he the God and the judge whom you must face? This judge or Savior is none other than Jesus himself. This morning you sit here hearing Jesus Christ being proclaimed as God and Savior and as judge. And you can sit here saying all of this is a fairy tale. But one thing is true. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And some of us here, Lord willing, all of us here, will look into that judge's eyes and see our Savior. But some of us, I pray, none of us hear those words. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. All of this is wrapped up in this verse. There's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. God is either your Savior or he is your judge. Who is Jude writing to? To the only God, our Savior. This is a letter to the church. This is a letter to those of us here who believe. This is a letter written by someone who loves the church. Directed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ who loved the church that he gave himself up for her. Hear the words of Christ this morning and come to him if you haven't already. Come to Christ that he may be your savior. And this brings us all to those of us here who are of faith, to the virtues of our praise to our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. I was very thankful this, actually, last Lord's Day when this conversation began, and which helped my week of study, talking to Brother Mike about this word be before glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. You know, one of the reasons that we switched to the New American Standard Bible was that, remember, one of the helps it gives you is that when there is not a word that's actually in the Greek text, they italicize it. The King James does this as well. And you may be looking at your Bible, and I want you to see that word be. That word be there is not in the original. The original would read something like this if we were to transliterate it into English. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, 
glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. And so we have the inclusion of this word be, which in linguistic terms is called an ellipsis. In grammar or rhetoric, an ellipsis is the omission of a word or a phrase that can be inferred from the context. So the editors put the word be here to help us, to help the English readers understand something that is inferred. But there could be some misunderstandings around what this means. Are we adding glory to God? Are we adding majesty and dominion and authority to God? Is not God simple? Does he not have glory, majesty, dominion, and authority in and of himself? So what exactly is going on in this verse? The literal standard version, or even Young's literal translation, translates this a little bit differently and says, To the only wise God our Savior is glory and greatness, power and authority. And they put the is in brackets. That's one way to understand what is being said here. But I do think B is the better choice. And in fact, the majority of translations will insert the word B. B, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Why do I think this is the better choice? Because of the context of what is happening in this section of Jude. Remember what it is? What are these last two verses? Do you remember from our last sermon? It's a doxology. It's a doxology. What's a doxology? It's a hymn in praise of the Almighty, a particular form of giving glory to God. What? Give glory to God? I thought he has the glory. What are we giving to him? What does he not have that, we could, that he could receive? That's not what we're talking about. Remember this kavod, speaking of the glory, not which is of the essence of God, but something that is displayed in creation, especially in the acts of redemption. When we say give glory to God, we're not saying give God something he doesn't already have. Glory is this concept of the Greek word doxa, transformed by the Septuagint. Now, this is interesting. Don't check out here because I think we are people of the book, so therefore we love words. This is fascinating to me when I came across this in my study. When the Bible interacts with the world, it changes the world. And it actually changed this word doxa, which is translated in Greek, glory. The concept of doxa was transformed by the Old Testament's Greek translation. This word is one of the clearest examples of a change in meaning of a Greek word. And it does so when it came, it did so when it came under the influence of the Bible. And in this case, the Old Testament. Interestingly to note, the word doxa in Greek, secular Greek that is, means opinion or conjecture. Now, think about that. When we think about the word glory, do you think it means opinion or conjecture? Certainly not. Doxa in biblical Greek frequently was used for the honor brought or given to God and above all the glory and power of God. So how did it get there? How did it go from being a word that meant in Greek opinion and conjecture to all of a sudden meaning bringing glory and power 
ascribing, rather, glory and honor and power to God. Because behind this new meaning of the word doxa in the Greek lies the Old Testament Hebrew concept of kavod. Kavod. So when we had this Hebrew term of this promise of the glory of God, they took this Greek word doxa and they brought in the meaning of kavod. And so now when we hear the word glory or doxa in Greek, we think of the Old Testament concept of kavod, not the secular Greek rhetorical definition which means opinion or conjecture. So what are we doing when we say, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to God? We are ascribing praise and adoration of the only God, our Savior. We're recognizing that this promise of kavod is manifested in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Ascribing glory to God is to recognize and praise Him for His infinite excellencies. Do you do that? Do you ascribe glory to God and recognize Him? and praise Him for His infinite excellencies? Or is He just a passing thought in your mind? We don't only ascribe glory, but we also ascribe majesty. This idea of majesty is this surpassing greatness, this highness beyond human apprehension. Listen to the attributes ascribed to God by David in his outburst of praise in 1 Chronicles 29. He says this, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Almost sounds like Jude is reading 1 Chronicles. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion. O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Did David recognize the infinite excellencies of Yahweh? Amen. And so should we. But we do not only ascribe glory and majesty, we also ascribe dominion. Dominion. What is dominion? It's this sovereign rulership as it manifests itself in action. This is what was really linked to this idea of the full manifestation of the glory of God at the end of the age when the coming of Christ dawned. Dominion, rulership, manifesting itself in action. The passive and the active obedience of Christ. Listen to Romans 5. We've heard it many times. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, that is Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in, the li in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. This dominion is ascribing glory to Jesus Christ for what he did that Adam failed to do, that each and every one of us here failed to do, keeping the law perfectly. Remember, Adam was given dominion over the world, over the garden for sure, 
But as a prophet, priest, and king in the first temple in Eden, he was given dominion over the creatures. He was given dominion over the land. He failed. Jesus has dominion over all of creation. In fact, he said, all what authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which brings us to our last part of ascribing to our Lord and Savior. We ascribe glory. We ascribe dominion, majesty, and authority. This speaks to his sovereign rulership, but in the light of his prerogative to do as he wills. You might say, well, isn't authority and power wrapped up in the idea of dominion? Yes. It also has to do with his sovereign rulership. But it also here speaks more specifically of his prerogative to do as he wills with his creation because he has dominion. I was reminded of a verse that we heard from our time in Daniel so long ago. Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? He has all authority and dominion. I was also reminded of the Lord's Prayer not to get into an explanation of the last part of this Lord's Prayer that is probably in brackets in your Bible. But after the Lord's Prayer, there is something of a doxology that is ascribed to the Lord. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's the same thing that Judas sang although Judas teasing it out a little bit more. But this is not new. This idea of the kingdom and the power and the glory being ascribed to God, or glory and majesty and dominion being ascribed to God, or Paul and Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. We ascribe glory to our Lord. He was ascribed glory in the Old Testament, and He's ascribed glory in the New Testament. But what is the duration of this praise that we give our God and Savior? That's the last part of this verse. Look with me. Before all time, and now, and forever. In other words... From everlasting to everlasting. Before creation. Remember we read the chapter on the mediator from our confession? Talked about this eternal decree before time to send his son as the mediator, the covenant of redemption. We praise God for that. We praise God for his decree we praise God for His judgment and His love 
that even preceded time. As Pastor Perkins taught us this morning, God doesn't put on love. God is love. And it's because God is love that he sent his son. And he planned to send his son before creation. And so when Jude says before all time, certainly this is in the category of before all time. Expressing of adoration and worship to God's eternal decree. Why should we do that as believers? Because it included your good. That before you were ever born, God foreknew you. That God loved you. Yes, God loves everybody in a, in, a, in a qualified way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But that's so whoever believes in him, God has a, a love that is worthy of our highest praise and adoration that he would save us and die for us even while we were yet sinners. And all of this was part of a plan that happened, or that's even bad words. We have no words to talk about things outside the realm of time. But it was decreed before time. You were foreknown before time. Christ was the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Not that it had happened in time and space, but that it was part of the eternal decree of God. And praise God for that, brothers and sisters. We praise him and ascribe him all of these things before all time, do we not? And now, and now do you ascribe praise to God for what he is doing in your life? Now that you have come in space and in time, do you praise him for life? And more than that, do you praise him for salvation? And forever. We will always be ascribing praise and glory and honor to the Lord. Now I turn back to Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. How long? How long will we ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and worship him in holy array from everlasting to everlasting? One other thing in passing, this also highlights the preexistence of Christ. If we're ascribing these things to Christ and it's before all time, how do you ascribe this glory to Christ before all time if he didn't pre-exist time? Again, a subtle reminder of the pre-existence and the deity of the Son. This doxological praise at the end of this glorious epistle could only be resolved by the word amen. A strong affirmation and a seal of approval upon what has just been said. One day we will all sing these words as, as I was reminded from Revelation 19. Hallelujah! Savior and glory and power belong to our God. Give praise to our God, all you His slaves. 
you who fear him, the small and the great. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you want to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Do you want to be among that number in holy array? Do you fear those words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you? Then come, come and taste and see that the Lord is good and worthy of our praise. Again, the word amen, which is a strong affirmation and seal of approval upon what has just been said, is the last word of Jude's epistle. And now as we come to the close of this epistle, let us all say the words, amen. Amen? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this short and powerful epistle. We thank you for this salvation that has come upon us in the last days. The glory that has been revealed in the last days your Son, Jesus Christ. This glory that was promised from the old and now revealed in the new, shining forth in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, how we long to see him and be like him. And we know this, that you have promised that we will be, for we will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and will be like him for we shall see him as he is. Oh, Lord, thank you for the promise that was from of old. Thank you for the promise now of what is to come. All of it centered on your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, who belongs glory and power and dominion and authority not only for now, but in eternity past, in eternity future. We confess that he is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of your glory, blameless, clothed with his righteousness, with great joy. Not only then, but now and forevermore. And in this we pray, amen.